As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. How can an entire country fall between the cracks? How can you have an entire nation that seems to somehow go under everyone's radar? See, this episode is our 60-second piece, and I can honestly say we have never covered a country with so little written about it before. For some reason, Suriname just seemed to be on the edge of everyone's knowledge. To the Latin American experts we usually turn to during research, they all said, well, we don't really cover the Guyanese shell, that's not really Latin America. To our Caribbean experts, they all told us, well, we would call it a Caribbean nation because of its ethnicity and its role in CARICOM, but it doesn't really come up much in Caribbean conversations. Even when we turned to our South America analysts, they all told us that they had very little info on the country, and what info they did have was in Dutch, as most South America analysts only ever speak Spanish, Portuguese, and possibly English. Time and time again, what we got was... We know there's some corruption and drug trafficking and a good chunk of Chinese money there, but we've all been watching Brazil and Venezuela or Colombia. The fact that there was so little out there and the usual sources we turned to actually put a bit of a fire under us to pursue this story. Because if nobody else is looking, what are we going to find? What we did find was a country at a complex crossroads. There are big decisions for this country going forward, and they all need to be made in the next few months. Will Suriname be able to be the new power broker in the Caribbean? Will it be the country to break the mold and escape the Chinese-led debt trap? And will Suriname be able to shake the history of murder and drug trafficking that have plagued the country for decades? Well, to try and answer that, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. Overlooked. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There's really uh, two reasons that reinforce each other. Uh, number one is that for its history, uh, Suriname was uh, colonized by the Dutch, and so its primary language is uh, is, is Dutch, which means that for uh, those scholars uh, studying Spanish-speaking Latin America or others uh, studying Portuguese-speaking uh, Latin America or those studying the English-speaking Caribbean, uh, Suriname tends to fall between the cracks. But in addition to that, of course, uh, Suriname being on the Guyanese shield in the southeastern portion of, of South America puts it on the other side of the Amazon from some of the more contentious politics of the Andean Ridge region. And yet at the same time, it's far enough away from the, the storms in other uh, Caribbean nations that uh, it doesn't uh, really attract consideration as, as part of the Caribbean. And so it, it tends to uh, be omitted for a number of reasons. And indeed, I remember the Suriname's ambassador uh, to Washington, D.C. used to have a business card with Suriname uh, colored in in red on the back of the card to remind people in a friendly way that Suriname actually was part of South America and, and not part of Africa or some other continent. Evan Ellis is an American research professor at the U.S. Army War College for Strategic Studies. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, specializing in Latin America and the Caribbean. He joins us today. 
In many ways, the Brazilian Amazon acts as a great border, just like the uh, Andes Mountains act as a border uh, disconnecting uh, Chile from the uh, eastern portion of, of South America. So uh, for Suriname, uh, because of, of that location on the north side of, of the Amazon, its politics were much more connected to the Caribbean and thus other uh, Caribbean states. And so uh, during the periods of colonization in which you had multiple different actors uh, struggling over those territories, the, the Spanish, the French, uh, the Dutch, the British, and of course, eventually uh, the U.S., uh, Suriname found itself as part of that and certainly connected uh, to those other Caribbean nations by the sea more readily than to the rest of the South American continent by land uh, having to cross the Amazon. So to set out some of the history and context here, when we look at a map of Suriname, they have Guyana, a former British territory to the west, Brazil to the south, and French Guyana to the east. And whilst Guyana gained its independence in 1970, French Guyana is still a part of France proper. It's as French as Normandie or Bourbon, which brings us to Suriname. Suriname was a Dutch colony, and the Dutch, like the French, still hold on to a number of their Caribbean possessions today, like Curaçao and Aruba. Was there a reason the Surinamese gained their independence whilst the people of Aruba or Curaçao did not gain their independence from the Dutch? The big picture is that the Dutch had a series of different uh, challenges to their um, their, their empire at the, at, at the time. But uh, certainly um, when you had the period of decolonization uh, in independence in South America in general, which started from the beginning of the 19th century, uh, really the Caribbean in the end uh, was among the, the last to be uh, decolonized. And so um, the Dutch, among others, including the, the British, uh, tended to hang on to their holdings. Uh, in addition to that, the Dutch, much like the French, had a slightly different concept about their colonies than the British did. And so, for example, uh, to this day, the Dutch uh, continue to incorporate parts of the area as part of the uh, the kingdom of the Netherlands. And so you have other, uh, you know, Aruba, Bonaire, Curaçao, um, and actually a different uh, status for Montserrat. So uh, Suriname, although it was actually uh, given independence, um, and indeed, uh, interestingly enough, it's one of the uh, few places that you can find uh, in, in the Americas where the resentment towards the former Dutch colonizers is actually greater than the resentment towards the relatively lesser presence of, for example, the, the North Americans. So continuing with some of the historical context here, let's talk about Suriname's position during the Cold War. We saw a lot of these Latin American nations looking toward the USSR and Cuba, but which direction did Parimaribo, the capital of Suriname, orientate itself toward during the Cold War? You had a, a series of, of parties in Suriname, not unlike other uh, uh, states in, in the Caribbean were attracted by uh, the appeal of the the Russians and the Soviets uh, to the independence movement. At the same time, it's also important to remember that uh, going all the way back to, to World War II, Suriname also had strategic value um, as a producer of um, as, of of bauxite uh, for aluminum. And so, for example, you had Alcoa there, as well as uh, Suriname uh, being a jumping off point uh, during, back in, in World War II uh, for uh, crossing over to Africa. Now, uh, as technology advanced, it, that did not become that important. And the strategic importance, other than aluminum and bauxite, uh, tended to uh, to recede. Um, and, and yet, uh, there was, uh, you know, again, still a, a sense of the importance of, of Suriname strategically from that minerals and, and from certainly Alcoa that uh, played a key role in both developing the nation and, of course, uh, um, you know, the sense that uh, of also exploiting the, the nation and the, um, the different Surinamese people. One of the other key factors that is unique to Suriname and um, the rest of, of the Guyanas, and to a lesser extent to Trinidad and Tobago, was that um, the history of the colonial experience brought a diversity of people of different ethnic groups, including uh, Indians, including persons um, of, of Javanese descent, including uh, some people of Chinese descent, and of course, um, uh, uh, persons of Afro um, African descent to Afro-Caribbean descent. And so um, you actually had a an ethnic plurality, uh, especially between uh, the black Surinamese, the, the Maroons, um, and the Surinamese of, of Indian descent that came to 
play a part in ethnic politics that looked like the ethnic politics in Africa, much more than uh, the more traditional colonial politics of other parts of South America. So the first thing you notice when you look at a map of Suriname is just how forested this country really is. And for people listening who aren't looking at a map, Suriname is a fairly square-shaped country. If we stick with our square analogy, the top side of the country is the one that touches the ocean. It contains the country's capital, Parimaribo. The capital sits on the coastline, slightly to the French Guyanese side of the country. The capital is pretty small with only around 250,000 residents living in there, but again, that's almost half the country. And the other half of the country lives within 25 kilometers of the coastline along the northern edge of the country. The entire southern seven-eighths of the country has a combined total of only around 40,000 inhabitants. And this is a big area we're talking about. So for some context, Suriname is roughly the size of Syria whilst having the population of Luxembourg. So with Suriname being independent since 1975, why hasn't there been more focus by Parimarabo to build up some of these southern regions of the country? This was really a facet of, of many states, not only in the Guyanese Shield, but, but elsewhere um, in the region. So uh, the access to Suriname, because of the relatively uh, impenetrable uh, you know, Amazon forest, was through the coast. And so you know, the, the cities, in, in this case Paramaribo, uh, just in the same way as, as Georgetown, Guyana, and, and others, uh, developed um, through trade between that coastal city and only very gradually extended inland. Indeed, um, you know, it was also compounded by the fact that you had relatively inhospitable uh, conditions, uh, inland uh, malaria and, and other diseases, um, and uh, at least to some extent, a, a plantation culture. And so really the, the key trading hubs uh, never had any reason to extend inland uh, in, in search for developing any particular uh, asset there or, or other uh, type of, of economic draw. Until fairly recently, Suriname had no road connections with any of its neighbors. And even today, there's only one bridge connecting it with France and none crossing the waterways that separate themselves and Guyana. How did a country go so long without building any connections with its neighboring states? Well, in part, you had the different uh, colonial governments, um, you know, of, of, of the two. And so in many ways, uh, each one, see, so actually each of the three, uh, you know, was ultimately called uh, French Guyana, Suriname, and of course, uh, Guyana un under the British, um, each developed largely with economic relations uh, with their uh, former uh, colonial government. Um, having said that, though, the there, you know, there was a you know, coastal road and some coastal infrastructure, which has been developed. But, um, you know, in reality, those uh, essentially poles of development built around the cities and, and the associated, uh, you know, sugar and, and rice plantations and others were uh, largely independent. Now, later, uh, what began to happen is that there was a certain amount of, of migration. So especially in the post-independence period, you had, uh, when times were bad in uh, the economy of Guyana, you would have immigration from Guyana to Suriname. When times were bad in um, Suriname, you'd have migration from Suriname to, to Guyana. So there was a certain amount of interchange, but, but again, the different languages, the, the legal structures and the relatively uh, uh, independent economies, either, even though both economies were structured on, on similar things, um, again, you know, rice, sugar, uh, etc., cetera, uh, really minimize that, that type of kind of logical division of labor, which would have caused a, an interchange, as you saw in some other countries. And what direction is Suriname's trade looking these days? Is it looking towards partners overseas in China and the US, or is it starting to look in South America and the Caribbean for partners? Well, it's a great question. Um, you know, traditionally, of course, uh, Suriname, you know, in, in addition to looking uh, to, the, to the Netherlands, uh, uh, has looked uh, towards the, the Caribbean and others. Um, because of the land issues that we just spoke about, uh, even though uh, Suriname in many ways is part of a potential uh, outlet to the uh, North uh, the, the North Atlantic uh, or the northern part of, of the Atlantic for, for Brazil. Uh, there's always been a competition between whether Brazil would try to build its, its infrastructure on the northern side of South America through Guyana going from Latem up to up to Georgetown or uh, through uh, the similar uh, Surinamese interior uh, 
up to uh, Paramaribo. And recently, actually, uh, Guyana has been uh, winning that battle uh, just a little bit. But the other question for Suriname, which has always tended to be somewhat absorbed within its own ethnic politics, uh, the relations uh, to the, the, the Dutch and, and the Dutch uh, uh, immigrants and, and Europe, uh, the relation uh, to the Caribbean, especially through its ethnic uh, pluralism, but as you alluded to uh, more recently, uh, relations to others. Uh, certainly the uh, the larger uh, aluminum bauxite economy through Alcoa tied it to the United States. But most recently, especially going back to Jules Wittenbosch's uh, government, you had uh, a turn uh, to, to China. Initially, uh, a, a Chinese construction company, China Dailan, came in building some roads around Paramaribo and uh, supporting uh, development in, in other areas. Uh, there was some talk about uh, perhaps in, in the bauxite sector. Uh, in working with the elites uh, in a way that was unique to uh, many nations in the region uh, because Suriname had a significant ethnic population, ethnic Chinese population. The, um, you actually had uh, the Chinese companies uh, and many of the Chinese workers coming in uh, kind of blending into that Chinese population and, and swelling that population and actually impacting the size of the Chinese population in the, the ethnopolitics of, of, of the region. So in many ways, Suriname has been a complex tapestry of, of different groups looking to a variety of, of different uh, countries uh, with, with different options for, for how it would develop. But in many ways, at the same time, the actual concept of what is the vehicle for development has, has changed. Um, perhaps one of the most recent things to come online certainly has been oil. Uh, this is an extension of the offshore oil fields that have, um, in which uh, some 10 billion barrels of recoverable oil have been found in neighboring Guyana. But as it turns out, uh, companies that were along looking in the Surinamese offshore, such as Apache and Tello, uh, initially couldn't find that uh, um, much oil. But on, on a secondary look, they've actually been finding enough oil that we may begin to see some of the, the larger oil majors uh, coming in to, to take another look at Suriname. And again, that would bring Suriname into the, the larger uh, you know, petroleum economy with the petroleum companies, petroleum service companies making it of interest uh, not only to you know China and the U.S., but but a range of, of others as well. But that's that's just in its infancy at this point. When we saw oil discovered in neighboring Guyana, we saw how it made a huge impact on the country's internal domestic politics. Are we likely to see the same sort of things happening in Suriname soon? Well, frankly, the amount of oil involved in Suriname is still, by most estimates, uh, you know much lower than the amount of oil offshore in Guyana and the Saybrook block. But um, there's certainly enough there, given Suriname's a very small population, uh, that uh, it would be uh, transformative in terms of you know per capita GDP in its own way. And, and frankly, uh, it would uh, create the same types of problems in Suriname that we've seen in neighboring Guyana, which is the question of which ethnic group being in charge uh, is, is in charge of distributing the oil spoils, uh, which, um, you know, how does the uh, rapid influx of new wealth impact uh, countries with uh, weak, oftentimes non-transparent and, and oftentimes uh, corrupt institutions? And you know, how does that attract a, a new generation of, of organized criminals as well? And what sort of countries would look to invest in Suriname if this took off? Well, the traditional economy has been a mixture of, of different uh, primary, primarily agricultural things. And so uh, you have uh, essentially the things that, that grow well there and, and traditionally. Uh, so mostly uh, export-oriented uh, rice and, and sugar. Uh, you have uh, significant timber holdings in, in the interior. Uh, and frankly, another thing that you have in the interior of, of Suriname, which is an extension of what you have in the interior of neighboring Guyana and, and the southeast of Venezuela, is gold. And so you have a lot of gold prospectors, indeed the sparsely populated uh, Surinamese interior, you have a, an interesting mixture of, of, of Chinese shops and, and gold prospectors, uh, including Brazilians and, and, and Russians and, and uh, just a range of, of other actors. But as you pointed out, um, you know, those kind of traditional agricultural sectors uh, also are, are being offset by the, you know, really, uh, you know, for the moment, stalled bauxite sector while international bauxite prices are low. Um, and now uh, some of the new promise in the, the oil sector. But, uh, but those are really some of the, the key, um, you know, key sectors uh, in, in the country. Well, and, that, and that is actually the, 
part of the traditional problem with with the bauxite market because the international bauxite market has been um, relatively depressed in terms of supply and demand as as uh, you know what goes into uh, you know different uh, you know different type of products uh, you know change you know that that has hurt uh, again neighboring Jamaica that has hurt um, now in terms of the the buyers um, you know again um, my understanding is, is it's the the mixture of uh, you know of, of Chinese, Europeans, uh, you know, U.S., etc. There's a there's a pretty it's a special, pretty specialized international market. So just back there, you mentioned organized crime, which has been a big problem in Suriname for a long time now. In fact, the previous president Putrezi himself was wanted on international drug charges and was told he would be arrested if he stepped foot in any country that cooperated with Interpol. Can you take us through just the interconnectedness we've seen between the Surinamese government and organized crime over the last few years? Well, the the story of, of Desi Baltrase is a fascinating one. Uh, go, again, going back to his his rise up uh, through the, the the army and, and his, of course his role in, in the military coup, um, and then of course his his later ascension to become essentially civilian president. Uh, but uh, Baltrase was long a, a strong man in these complex ethnopolitics of Suriname. So uh, one of the things that that's uh, a you know a definite uh, is uh, the fact that his son uh, Dino Baltrase uh, several years ago was arrested uh, for an exchange that involved uh, drugs for what he thought was uh, allowing uh, Hezbollah operatives to set up a training camp in the interior of, of Suriname. It turned out to be a DEA U.S. Uh, sting operation. But more broadly, it's it's generally believed that uh, Baltrase himself was involved in in any number of narco-trafficking activities, uh, essentially not unlike Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua taking attacks on, on what th- went through those uh, th- those territories. Um, and indeed, it was, it was actually interesting that the real charges that stuck even more than the drug charges against Baltrase were uh, the essentially the personal murder charges against, I, I believe it was uh, 12 different individuals. Um, there was a conviction. Uh, you know, he was wanted in, in the Netherlands. Um, there was actually a conviction uh, for that uh, after his, in, in a Surinamese court. And so um, he actually has been convicted. And yet, uh, because of the internal process in, in Suriname, it doesn't appear that he will go to jail anytime soon. The interesting thing is that uh, Baudrasse's departure uh, and the the new head of uh, Suriname, or not so new anymore, uh, Chan Santoki, uh, actually uh, has a background as a prosecutor and uh, one of his uh, part of his political opposition uh, back uh, 10 to 20 years before was actually fighting uh, to try to bring down uh, Baltrase, among other, other things. Although uh, Chan Santoki, as a law and order president, has found himself subject to having to compromise with some of the different uh, equally shady factions in those politics. So, for example, even beyond drugs, one of the major illicit industries that we discussed in, in Suriname is 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 gold illicit uh, gold trafficking and also laundering of, of money uh, through different uh, gold instruments in in the interior and then of course uh, you know in in Paramaribo uh, itself where some of the the actual uh, exchange houses occur but for example um one of the essentially uh, rebel leaders uh, turned into politicians turned into probably one of the um you know wealthy persons, business persons in the country sitting on some of those uh, gold deposits is now in that coalition, and that is Ronnie Brunswick. Um, Interestingly, uh, Ronnie Brunswick always seems to know when to jump ship. Uh, Started out uh, actually um, in in opposition uh, to to Desi Baltrase, but then at an opportune moment decided that he was going to join forces uh, with Baltrase. Uh, again, um, started out uh, really outside of the, the current uh, coalition, the VHP uh, coalition uh, with Chan Santoki, but at the end of the day, it was actually him jumping on board that coalition that put uh, Chan Santoki in, in power. And so in Suriname, what you have now is a law and order former attorney general whose coalition is dependent on a you know, basically gold smuggler and, and probably a narco-trafficker, uh, and uh, looking at the probable non-prosecution of a previous president who was, you know, convicted for murder in addition to his narco-trafficking. So a lot of uh, pretty ugly things happen in Suriname under beautiful blue skies. With the country trying to put some of this in the past, where do you think the future for Suriname lies? 
the answer is all of the above and and more. And so uh, Suriname has long had a, a natural interest, uh, you know, with, uh, with with CARICOM. Although again, the linguistic and in historical differences have um, have created uh, you know some bridges there. Uh, with the Guyanese Shield countries, it's interesting to see that for the first time in, in quite some time, you have uh, Suriname and neighboring Guyana, which. Uh, historically have had political rivalries, now both governed by um, parties of Indian ethnic descent. Uh, so Irfan Ali's uh, party, the, the, the PPP in, in neighboring Guyana, and, and Chan Santoki's uh, you know, Indo Surinamese VHP coalition. It was interesting to see that both presidents came to power uh, after difficult uh, political fights. And uh, both actually reached out relatively early to each other to look for ways to, to work together, something that really has not happened. It's usually been more about trying to overcome some of their, their, their difficulties. And so I think there's certainly more to be done in that area. As you alluded to, uh, Suriname does continue to have that tie to Brazil uh, in a natural position as a, a territorial outlet for uh, the northern eastern you know, relatively impoverished states in Brazil to uh, reach the, the Atlantic and in the Caribbean. And so it's interesting. Suriname, Paramaribo is one of those places that you actually found, find an outsourced, outsized presence by the Brazilian uh, diplomatic uh, representation and, and even the military representation. And as we alluded to before, uh, there are a, a number of, of different uh, things that make Suriname of interest to the Chinese, going back to, again, the, the entry by China Dailan under the Wittenbosch presidency and, um, and, and other factors. And, and that will continue to cause Suriname to look towards the, the Chinese and, and others, uh, particularly with respect to, to oil as well as the, the forestry in, in the interior. And so um, you know, there's really no single area that Suriname should throw its lot in with, but but rather try to have a balanced development as, as part of the West and as a probably one of the most unique, um, you know, ethnically plural and culturally plural uh, countries that is indeed in South America. The more you peel back in a country like Suriname, the more interesting it gets. And with crime and corruption and newly found oil, there are more and more eyes that once paid no attention to Party Maribo now turning toward the country. Nations like China and the US are now starting to see the potential in a country with such a small population, but such a proportionarily higher potential. But where will Suriname turn? Is its future amongst the pandemic-devastated Caribbean nations, or is it toward the oil-dependent neighbours in the West? Well, for that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2 a booming neighborhood. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So Suriname is the smallest country in South America, but it's always had a Caribbean feel to it. Um, most academics have always considered Suriname to be a part of the Caribbean, um, but it is a lot of hard. It is very hard for many people to consider Suriname as a Caribbean nation because it doesn't border the Caribbean Sea directly, nor is it an island in the sense of being surrounded by water. Um, but we're seeing more and more throughout geopolitics the idea of Caribbean expanding outside the original understanding of the word. For example, Belize is commonly referred to as a Caribbean country. And it seems like today academics are really redefining the area of these countries as they're emerging more. We've almost stopped a limitation that has been set on Caribbean nations, that they're based purely on physical nature. And now there's been a focus of these countries grouping together through their similarities, um, whether that's economically, culturally, or politically. For Suriname, uh, culturally, people relate more to their northern pool, which is creating almost a push away from South America and an association with that identity in particular. Um, we've seen this throughout the integration of Suriname economically with, with their Caribbean counterparts. It's a member of the Caribbean community, which is more commonly known as CARICOM or CC. Um, they've also been designated 
one of, as one of the more developed countries in CARICOM, and Suriname enjoys great benefits from the Caribbean community. Um, they're also deeply integrated with Caribbean countries. So the Caribbean Court of Justice, for example, which is headquartered in Trinidad, helps settle disputes with the CARICOM countries. Um, and it's based on the functions of the Caribbean single market and economic strategy. Perry Grace is a researcher and analyst primarily specialising in disinformation in authoritarian regimes, as well as open source intelligence analysis, specialising in Latin America and the former colonised African states. She's a prolific writer on conflict and security, working with the United Nations Institute of Training and Research. But most importantly, she's also a senior analyst here at The Red Line. And we're thrilled to have her on the program today. Under the new presidency and with the recent pandemic, there's definitely been a more strong pull towards CARICOM and their Caribbean member parts and grouping together and focusing on strategy. Um, particularly as these countries are in the same economic situations, having a huge drop in tourism um, and being reliant on that as an economy, definitely developed a stronger relation towards their Caribbean counterparts. But Suriname is also greatly isolated from South American continent. So the southern and largest district in the country, if you combined all the other districts of the country and times it by four, it would be nearly the same size as this district. And it's almost completely covered in rainforest. It's extremely tribal and there's estimates for only 30,000 people in this area. And this area very much separates the country from South America. So you can see that geography has also played a natural divide. The country's new president, Santoke, is a pretty big change from the long-time previous president, Butreze. How impactful has this change been for the country, and how did Santoke manage to take power away from this long-time ruler? So Desi Butreze, the previous president, was sentenced to 20 years for the killing of 15 political opponents. Uh, many were happy to see him be replaced by Santoke. Santoke entered the election as a leader of the Progressive Reform Party, he was a former police officer and he studied at a police academy in the Netherlands and he later returned to Suriname and became a police inspector. In 1991, he was named the chief of police. Santoki had a bitter rivalry with Botrese. It was actually Santoki's investigation which led to Botrese's conviction. Um, and they also had, Santoki also had had a failed attempt at the presidency in 2010. Uh, with the election, it also took three weeks to verify the votes, so it was a very tense election. Santoki won a majority of the votes with 20 seats in the 51-seat National Assembly. Uh, Santoki was handed a collapsed economy. Despite the recent discovery of vast oil reserves off the coast of the country, Bortese did not build a successful economy. So many people in the country had reached a saturation point with Bortese. Uh, some could categorise his government as having a long authoritarian streak. The election for many people represented a new era for the country and with Santoki's victory, he had a lot to inherit. In the last 10 years of the office, Bortesi had shifted Suriname's foreign alliances away from the Netherlands and towards China and nearby Venezuela. As you mentioned with our previous guest, Suriname has a fairly low amount of trade with its direct neighbours, still not even having a road connecting it with Guyana. A lot of this is testament to the old colonial policies of colonies simply sending their resources back to their rulers, rather than an intercolonial trade system. But why does this colonial doctrine seem to have held on here, whilst other countries have moved towards a more Latin American or regional trading bloc? I think Suriname's not known how to look both internally and externally at the same time. It's kind of played a balancing act between looking internally and looking externally in their policies. But recently there was a trip by Brazilian President Bolsonaro and he has a vision of creating a regional energy corridor that Guyana, Suriname and Brazil all had a high profile meeting between leaders in anticipation for the construction of a gas pipeline tied to various petrochemical and industrial projects. Brazil is looking at planning an electricity and interchange and a highway network that would give Northern Brazil access to the Atlantic. Bolsonaro also wants to secure a priority for Brazil's state control Petrobras, which is offshore Suriname. So we may see a project in the potential planning of a road, but of course, there are many factors to play. A major hurdle naturally is the upcoming Brazilian election, and it looks like a decision for a road connecting the two countries would come from an external partner. Another remnant of history here is the large internal diasporas from countries like India, Indonesia, and China. And we can see in neighbours like Guyana and Trinidad, 
the effect that similar diasporas have on politics, with political parties regularly appealing to ethnicity. But do we see these diasporas in Suriname also playing similar pivotal roles in Surinamese politics as well? So Suriname is extremely ethnically diverse. There are Javanese who are formerly from Dutch-ruled Indonesia. There was a large flow of East Indian migration from northern British India. They are very commonly called Hindustani uh, within Suriname. And of course, there's Creoles who are descendants from Africa. Chinese migration to Suriname has occurred for years. There was a wave of Chinese migration in the 19th century and then a second wave in 1950s and 1960s. Thousands of Chinese have migrated from Suriname also to the Netherlands. There are also Mandarin and Cantonese television shows that have aired in Suriname. Some Chinese customs have also been adopted into the Suriname culture. So with this diaspora in mind, of course ties with Beijing, like most of the world, are strengthening. In 2018, Suriname signed the Belt and Road Initiative. Some reactions to this were not positive, with some people in the country finding the growing relationship between China and Suriname as controversial. Hindustanis have traditionally dominated the business and trade sector, with other ethnic political party groups not sharing the same sentiment as the government towards increasing relationships with China. China's relationships in the Caribbean and also in Central and South America are often overlooked, but China sees this area as an emerging force and are attempting to consolidate a grip. Uh, Suriname will have to remain a close friend to China. They don't really have a choice to fall into what some people call the debt trap. Financially speaking, the ties between India and Suriname remain extremely modest, especially with their trade and economic links. Geopolitically speaking, Suriname is facing this crossroad. Like many Caribbean and South American countries, they're needing to decide who they cozy up next to, and it looks like they're finding it hard to take one side if they want to go towards US or they want to go towards more India or they just want to stay on the route they are on now which is looking towards China, Venezuela and Russia. There is tremendous potential in terms of development in Suriname but they also face a really tough decision. Obviously the pandemic hit countries like Suriname particularly hard for a myriad of reasons. So what is the government's current plan to get them out of this economic crisis? Like many places, I think it's going to be a very long road to recovery in the Caribbean. Uh, when the pandemic began, tourism in the region came to an almost standstill. And as a result of the paralysis of the industry, uh, Caribbean economies were hit very hard and employment was hit hard as well. It impacted many communities. In comparison to traditional revenue sectors in these countries, the tourism industry is a sector that is commonly seen as a sustainable means of income. Uh, tourism accounts for a significant slice of the GDP in many of these countries. So most Caribbean countries were exposed to a, just a sudden drop in tourism. In March 2020, borders were closed in Suriname and the tourism sector lost somewhere between 90 and 98% of the sector revenue. Uh, because of the border closure, the sector reached this crossroad. It was a big wake-up call for Suriname. They had to either look at closing the doors or look into offering other products and services to ensure the industry's survival. One thing that Caribbean countries have really accepted throughout this pandemic is that they know that their economies cannot be diversified overnight. Ever wondered what it's like to be in the room with top Al-Qaeda terrorists plotting their next move? Do you want to know how the history of Islamic fundamentalist thought informs the way the world works today? Well then, dear listener, Conflicted is the podcast for you. I trace the epic battles between Muslims and the West. What are the Houthis' objectives in the Red Sea? It's a lesson to the rest of the Muslim world and the Arab world. Do not trust the Islamists. Hosted by me, Thomas Small, an author and filmmaker, and my good friend, Ayman Dean, an ex-Al-Qaeda jihadi turned MI6 spy, Conflicted tells stories of the Islamic past and present to help you make sense of the world today. And now Conflicted Season 5 is being cooked up, coming to you very soon. And in the meantime, you can sign up to our Conflicted community to give you bonus episodes and access to our community hub on Discord. Subscribe to Conflicted wherever you get your podcasts. The power of the dollar has different impacts in different places. When China throws $100 million at a country, to China, that's nothing. It's a set of apartments in Guangzhou. To the Caribbean, though, to a nation like Suriname or Barbados, 
$100 million makes a world of difference. It's a full 3% of the entire GDP for someone like Suriname. What this means is that for nations like China or the US, throwing $100 million here and there is very little risk to them, but can reap huge rewards in these small, resource-rich nations. So with China starting to throw cash around in the region, and with a lack of US tourists, how successful have these investments been? Will we once and for all see Suriname locking in partnerships with China, Venezuela, and Cuba? Well, for that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. Pulling up the drawbridge. Well, the, the first answer is obviously size. Uh, it's small. Um, and, and its economy is small, too. It, it survives uh, mostly on natural resources. Um, until recently, that did not include oil, uh, which obviously has raised its stock a little bit in terms of international discussions, but not much, as you say. The second reason is that it, it's it's unique. Uh, it's it's a former Dutch colony. It's it's uh, Dutch speaking. Uh, it doesn't really fit into our conception of of the uh, broader hemisphere when we think about Latin America. Even though there's a diversity of languages that are spoken, uh, uh, hundreds of of indigenous languages, in fact, uh, we don't think about Dutch being spoken. Um, so you know, it, it's a challenge in that sense as well. Um, and, and the last is that. You know, it's sort of been a victim in terms of attention of, of sort of bubbling below the surface in terms of the the corruption scandals, the uh, politics. You know, it's it, while there have been um, a number of corruption scandals and a coup, of course, um, it, it there's, there's no no huge social conflict uh, to date, um, and, and in fact, you know, most most of the so the patterns of, of political change have sort of followed the general Latin American patterns of coups and the. Uh, 60s, 70s, and then, well, 75, it was, it was independent, and then, and then, you know, coups, and then return to democracy, and so stumbling along with more or less a, a several-term president, Desi. Um, so it, it didn't quite, you know, it's, it's both different, but yet not sufficiently different to really make it stand out in the hemisphere. Chris Sabatini is a senior fellow for Latin America at Chatham House, and was formerly a lecturer in discipline in the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University. Chris is also on the advisory boards for Harvard University's Latin America program and the advisory committee for Human Rights Watch America's division. He is also a HFX fellow with the Halifax International Security Forum and has made multiple appearances on this show. We're thrilled to have Chris back on the show today. Well, certainly the, the nature of, of the oil exploration uh, is going to open that up. Um, and in, in since not just in terms of its exports, but you have, for example, you mentioned Brazil. You know, Brazil has really built out its petroleum industry, uh, both refining and pipes and all of this with the equipment that's necessary uh, for, for oil production and, and drilling and shipping. And so they'll, Brazil will likely see this as a great opportunity for its growing petroleum industry that started under uh, President Lula a few years back. So I think with Brazil, there's going to be a very keen interest. I think there'll be a keen interest also in financial markets. You know, we may talk about, and certainly Suriname's at great risk of this, of being converted into a petro-state with all the attendant problems of corruption, state inefficiency, uh, withering of other uh, uh, sectors of the economy. But you know, obviously, states that float bonds and that are tied to its oil production are a pretty good bet. So I think we'll see also greater connections with the financial sector. And you're right, right next door, you've got Guyana, which has also just had its own, it's, in fact, it's a little farther along in its own sort of oil discovery and exploration. So we'll see ties in that regard. And the last, you know, the, the truth is the Caribbean has been, is really energy poor. Suriname is obviously on the coast of South, Af- South America, but you know, what, what allowed for former president of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez, to build up such a massive uh, coalition and solid coalition with in the Caribbean was a program he called Petrocaribe, which gave um, basically oil at discounted rate to Car- rates to Caribbean states. I would expect, given Suriname's much closer ties to the Caribbean, this could be an avenue for them too to assert their regional leadership in the Caribbean basin in ways that don't just project, project its power within the region, uh, the Caribbean basin, but also then project it more broadly within the hemisphere. The, the Caribbean countries, both mostly of, the, of them in CARICOM, actually vote as a block often, um, particularly in the Organization of American States, the regional 
multilateral organization based in Washington. Um, so this will give them a fair amount of patronage and leverage over those uh, uh, states to be able to assert more regional leverage. And, and perhaps that may even translate it to a global scale. While Suriname is at this low point due to lack of tourism numbers, who is investing money into the country to fill those gaps? We've had a few international oil companies pull out just lack of success in their initial oil exploration. Chevron just signed a deal. Chevron's, you know, is, is really sort of a, a pioneer. You could even say perhaps a cowboy in terms of its willingness to go where few oil companies go to find oil. It's Nigeria, Venezuela, even during the Chavez years. Um, it's been very active uh, in Suriname. Um, I s- suspect a number of the other American companies that are active in Guyana will just sort of take the trip next door. Um, that would include primarily ExxonMobil. Uh, but yes, you have seen the Chinese begin to move in. For China, it's not just a matter of, of increasing its, its economic footprint in terms of investment in these countries. It's also diplomatic. It wants to build more allies. It wants to tie uh, in its own sort of global regional uh, ambitions with uh, economic connections and, and that sort of the patronage and the ties will help build. But then it also has its own energy needs. China is is doesn't produce sufficient amounts of petroleum to fuel its own um, needs, and that's you know that those ties it has developed in Africa, in Venezuela in particular, in Ecuador uh, have served it very well and be able to ensure that it has a solid lock uh, on oil and gas that it needs. Uh, and, and in fact. It, it, you know, in times of economic distress, it's, it's leverage is very much to its advantage. In the case of Venezuela, the Chinese gave, I believe it was a $40 billion loan to the Venezuelan government that um, is being paid back the principal, the most, the largest share of it's being paid back in discounted oil back to China indefinitely. So basically China was able to take Venezuela's economic distress and mortgage its future to provide oil to to China indefinitely um, at a discounted rate, below market rate. With China's increasing interest in the region, are we likely to see Beijing fund and support ethnically Chinese candidates in future Surinamese elections? China doesn't tend to get involved in in domestic politics. Uh, It it prefers to stay at arm's length. I think it's going to find it difficult to do that in in many countries. Uh, Venezuela is a case in point. But it, while it, it does use and tap Chinese diaspora in some of these cases, um, and it uses them, for example, setting Confucius centers, but it's mostly for issues of so- soft power, improving the image uh, of China using uh, those local communities to help establish local media um, interests and news, um, uh, building out sort of exchanges through that, but they they have not tended to, in ways, you know, say Russia has done, is to use ethnic enclaves uh, to influence local politics directly. With Suriname being a former Dutch colony, what is the relationship like today between Suriname and the Netherlands? I mean, they still speak Dutch. The the Dutch still maintain a a strong relationship. I mean, they've had, they've tried and convicted uh, uh, the former president, uh, Desi Bertese, um, so there is that connection, um, you know, it's also, you know, Dutch Royal Shell is obviously, uh, um, an oil company. I haven't seen them sort of go in strong to Suriname, but I imagine you know, the Dutch have done a very good job of, of basically overcoming, in fact, they're the model, if you will, of avoiding that trap of becoming a Petro state. They learned early on, uh, how to park funds offshore so you don't get an overvalued exchange rate that then weakens your, your export base and, um, inflates uh, the incentive for imports. Um, so, you know, I think there's, you know, beyond any cultural ties, I do think there is a uh, certain sort of, uh, um, I say political economic affinities there that could be useful should Suriname decide to tap it. And what about the French? Obviously sharing a direct border with France proper. What is the relationship like with Paris? That's a good question. I mean, I think that will depend Looking at it, particularly in the case of, of, of energy and oil, and particularly the EU has really imposed some restrictions on the types of oil it will it will import and the conditions under which it will import them as a way to try to disincentivize carbon-based fuels. Um, so it, insofar as Suriname's major uh, exports uh, become uh, oil, I think that's going to be difficult for them to, uh, you know, and I don't know much about Suriname's sort of oil mix. But if it's anything similar to what we've seen in Venezuela, it may be very heavy 
um, require a fair amount of refinement, and that not may not meet the standards that the EU is seeking to uh, impose on uh, oil imports. Something we haven't talked about yet on this piece is the territorial dispute between Suriname and Brazil, with Brazil laying claim to a big chunk of Suriname's southwest corner. Is this dispute something both sides take very seriously, or is it just something the nationalists might bring up from time to time? You know, Brazil is is the the uh, eight hundred pound gorilla in South Af- South America. Rather, it doesn't it doesn't believe it. Is it believes it's sort of a, a benign uh, power, uh, but it is a large power, and it's one that has tended often to throw its weight around, not not perhaps as aggressively uh, or as uh, unilaterally as as um, other regional powers. And so there's always that resentment and friction. And we have to remember that it sounds silly, but the border areas uh, are, are fairly underdeveloped between Brazil and Suriname. Uh, so there's also questions of, of borders and boundaries and the like. But the truth is, is insofar as Suriname now would be entering into oil markets, yeah, it does threaten Brazil's role uh, for in its own petroleum exports. The large bulk of its future oil future is dependent on the, the pre-sol or the offshore oil findings that it discovered about a decade ago. But those are difficult to reach. They're very expensive to extract. So, you know, when you're getting more cheap oil on the market, that's going to undercut not just the incentive for uh, drilling this oil, but also obviously its price once it hits the market. So you mentioned a bit earlier about the effects Suriname selling cheap oil in the region might have. Can you see Suriname taking a leadership role in an organization like CARICOM after supplying cheap oil to its island neighbors? Um, I, I think there is. Uh, you know, it, as much as we talk about you know green economies and build back better or whatever catchphrase you want to throw in there that's sort of anti-carbon, the truth is is um, you know, oil is going to maintain its place in the world economy, uh, and oil will continue to make a lot of money. For countries that export it. And that's particularly true uh, for the, again, the oil poor countries uh, in the Caribbean. And if leveraged effectively, can be a form of patronage, international patronage that can buy votes simply because economies become dependent on it. Politics also become dependent on it. We've seen, you know, in, a, in a, more than a couple cases, one clearly is, is, is Nicaragua, where Daniel Ortega, you know, his, his initial, now he's he's only surviving politically through brute repression, but his initial sort of uh, trajectory back into politics was fueled, no pun intended, by uh, Venezuela's uh, oil giveaway program, primarily to businesses as well. And, and Suriname can start to do this now, uh, both with its neighbors as well as Central American and obviously uh, the Caribbean in ways that I think, you know, if it seeks to do this, because as you've mentioned, Michael, there isn't a lot in the local economy. There isn't a lot of political payback that's necessary in terms of population. It's not a large population um, that it will have to invest in, unlike, say, Venezuela or like Brazil, which, you know, after its pre-sol discovery, uh, basically sort of <laughs> largely spent a large chunk of the money in terms of education investments, investments in infrastructure and all these other things. Suriname doesn't have that. So what they pump out is is really relatively uh, more oriented to, as a percentage to the global markets and gives them a certain amount of um, flexibility in how they sp- how they distribute it, if you will, for own, I mean, political purposes. And that, by the way, uh, you haven't mentioned this and I appreciate it, could also mean for more nefarious purposes. The, you know, we've seen uh, persistence, um, very high level corruption cases in, in Suriname, obviously with the former president, uh, Desi Bortezi, who, uh, you know, was indicted of cocaine traffic, still managed to come back. Uh, you have the former head of the central bank and the finance minister who was recently indicted for cocaine trafficking. You know, the, Suriname is, is well, not on the border of Colombia, it doesn't have the, the great corrupting influence of real estate that, say, Venezuela has, um, it is still a, is still a somewhat major transshipment point uh, for drugs, many of which, you know, in the, as the indictment of former President Bortese indicated, are uh, going to the Netherlands. Um, you know, you overlay that form of corruption and lack of transparency uh, and, and governmental uh, weakness uh, onto this massive influx of, of oil wealth, 
and uh, you, you, it's, it can be a, it could be a particularly toxic combination. Can you take us through why Suriname is so involved in the drug trade at the moment? You know, they don't share a border with Colombia. There's no easy roadways in. So why is Suriname such a jumping off point for the cocaine trade? I suspect part of it is just simply colonial ties. Um, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence that it was the Netherlands that indicted, convicted former President Bortese. Um, so I think, you know, part of that is just it, it, it is it has those connections um, and those things do matter. It, it, it's, you know, it's often funny tracking the evolution of, of um you know, of, of drug networks and it, you know, whether it's immigrant patterns or what have you, um, those matter. And I think that's, that's primarily it. And of course, you know, there is, it is a fairly, you know, drug traffickers seek weak states to conduct their business. Hence, we've seen, for example, in the corridor of drugs that go to the United States, um, Central America, to the Honduras and Guatemala becoming major uh, trafficking routes because those are weak, easily co-opted states. And that's uh, been the case for Suriname as well. Obviously, the big story in this region of the world is the tensions and instability inside Venezuela at the moment. So how does Suriname view the current government in Caracas? You know, well, they've been quiet uh, as as much of the region. Um, You know, there there is a, they see, obviously, they want to play nice in their neighborhood. Um, They share... Um, a lot of, if you will, sort of uh, interest in terms of uh, keeping um, international organizations, international law, sort of a little bit distant from their borders. And so uh, they, they haven't sought a big role. But again, they're a small country, so no one really looks to Suriname as a broker uh, in this. Um, I suspect, again, as, as Suriname becomes uh, um, a little bit more economically independent, that will come with the will come with it is even more diplomatic autonomy. They'll allow it to, to pursue even, even more of an independent or go it alone strategy when it comes to Venezuela. But again, no one's looked at Suriname as being a, you know, a, a broker in this. And we've looked to uh, Brazil, Colombia, certainly Argentina, Mexico, not that all have stepped up, Peru and Chile as well, but no one's turned to, to, to um, uh, Suriname. And one thing that is interesting and probably will be relevant is worth mentioning is that there's a border dispute between Venezuela and, and Guyana, which has stepped up. And, um, and that it's increased because of the discovery of oil uh, off the coast of Guyana in that disputed territory. And, and basically, uh, th- this was a, the border was settled uh, back when it was um, by the British. Uh, and, but the Venezuelans have claimed it's about a third of the country. It's a sizable chunk of Guyana that Venezuela claims. And if, actually, if you go to Venezuelan official offices, you'll often see maps where that border has shifted down. The, 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 what they recognize as their border, but what is not internationally recognized as their border. For reasons probably of small state versus weak states and regional solidarity, I would expect, while Suriname wouldn't want to get involved uh, in any sort of larger dispute about Venezuela's internal politics, you know, should Venezuela move on claiming, physically moved and claiming this territory um, in a way that broke those agreements, then you know, I, I could expect Suriname to, to speak up, certainly because, again, that small state, large state phenomenon um, and, and a desire to, to uh, avoid any similar fate for itself. A player we haven't talked about much in this piece so far is the United States. So what is the U.S. relationship like with Suriname at the moment? Yeah, it's probably a bit, I don't know if you've ever read Graham Greene's The Honorary Council, uh, about an honorary council in Paraguay. It's probably a bit more like that. <laughs> you know, some, there was some guy who was serving out in the middle of the Chaco. And, you know, I, I think um, that's where it says, I think this will increase. The, the U.S. Embassy, for example, in Guyana is now staffing up primarily because of, because of energy um, and because of the threat of, of, of Venezuela. Um, so I suspect they will be uh, ramping up. You know, the U.S. has also, in the case of Guyana, been instrumental in trying to promote some form of uh, anti-corruption transparency initiatives to try to avoid uh, the, the distorting, corrupting effects of uh, oil wealth, windfall, um, even worsening uh, the weak state. In fact, the United States just, uh, well, in 2021, did actually sponsor a, a review of uh, Suriname's institutional capacity to address corruption 
Uh, it funded that review. It's it's online. You can find it. Uh, but basically, arguing for a whole series of strengthening of checks and balances, of transparency measures, uh, to ensure uh, again that the oil windfall uh, doesn't augment already uh, persistent problems of corruption and lack of accountability. And uh, not coincidentally, also the UN Development Program, UNDP, has done the same thing. So, yeah, I think there's a, a renewed interest, not so much from the level of again strategic geopolitics, but just from the, the level of, you know, how do you avoid uh, a country falling into the, the, the petro-state trap? And what do you see the future for Suriname over the next 10 years? Do you think we'll be looking to the United States or further to China or even southward to Brazil for better relationships and a larger geopolitical partner to boost their position in international trade? Brazil, under the current president, Bolsonaro, is not is not really looking beyond its borders. Bolsonaro came with a particularly Trumpist view of, of foreign relations, uh, sort of Brazil first, was sort of a sort of a tacit approach to, to foreign policy. That may change if, if the um, in the elections this year in 2022, uh, if Lula is elected, which looks quite possible. Lula was always a, a force to be reckoned with in terms of his personality and his view of the region. And uh, Brazil was under his two terms was really trying to uh, establish itself as a regional leader. And, and, you know, if the politics and economics of uh, Suriname change, you know, change in the way I think we're all predicting, you're certainly implying, um, then Brazil may actually pay more attention to Suriname. You know, Brazil was trying, it did actually was under Lula, did play a very positive role in a few border disputes. Some of them were more trumped up than others, but but they did they, they did play a positive role in the case of Ecuador and Colombia, for one. Um, and so it may, it may actually try to, to throw its diplomatic weight around in a positive way. The, you know, the United States will stay involved. Um, obviously, wherever U.S. Uh, capital interests and financial interests are, U.S. government uh, keeps a very close tabs on them, not to advance them, but just to protect them and protect their interests and protects the sanctity of contracts. And of course, as I say, you know, the, the, also the sanctity of uh, the protection of, of uh, U.S. lives that would accompany any uh, project of this sort of, that are being comp- contemplated in, in Suriname. And China, I fully expect to. China, you know, if they if they see an opening, they take it and try to take advantage of it. And in this particular case, uh, with the possibility of oil, with the possibility of a weak state, with the, again the possibility with the advantage of a ch- large Chinese ethnic community there. Um, I fully expect China, as it's trying to slowly and with a view towards a long game, increase its influence, not necessarily as a threat actor, but its influence globally, and certainly in the hemisphere, especially as the U.S. And, uh, is seeking a, a much tougher line on China's uh, policies within its own region, in particular in the South China Sea, uh, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Yeah, they would seek to have us certain amount of uh, skin in the game, if you will, in, in Latin America, South America, and, and Suriname provides an opportunity for that. Suriname, like so many other nations, is currently stuck in a dilemma. Try and put yourself in Suriname's shoes. Imagine a machine that for every dollar you put into it, you get $2 back. And next to it, an entire row of other machines where you put a dollar in, but you want to get $1.10 back. See, most of us would run to the bank and grab every dollar we had and keep feeding them into the $2 machine without ever thinking about what might happen if that single machine breaks down or stops paying out or even pays out less. Most countries look at the oil industries a bit like this, knowing that for every dollar they spend on something like textile manufacturing, they may only get a dollar ten back in productivity, whereas putting that dollar into the oil industry will yield them an easy, fantastic and quick return, at least for now. The temptation will always grow when you're president. You hear things like, sir, if we had a little more money, we could build a new airport here, and that would really help these people. Let's put some money out of these farming crops and industries, and we'll put it into the oil market, and we'll have it back in no time. It's a very tempting thought, and a bargain that a lot of leaders in oil-rich countries have taken. But as we've seen in countries like Venezuela, Angola, and Algeria, by putting all of your eggs into that one basket, it means disaster when that nest falls off the perch. So will Suriname take the same bargain that is now shackling Venezuela? Or will it look to keep as diversified as possible like Mexico? Well, that is what the few people actually closely watching Suriname at the moment are all waiting to see. 
Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. Last month was an absolute monolith for the program, with the program receiving over 1.1 million views in just January, smashing all of our previous records. So to all of the new people here, we're absolutely thrilled to have you with us, and thank you so much for the support of the show. And to the existing listeners, we couldn't have done this without you. This year is already off to a raring start, and we're busier than ever creating extra analysis, a special mini-series, new content for the website, and much, much more, and all of which can be found on our website, theredlinepodcast.com. So make sure you don't miss anything, and keep up to date with everything we're up to by either going to the website or following us on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at theredlinepod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle MikeElitoz. Oz is in Australia. This episode is dedicated to a friend of the show, Jimothy, who's our latest patron to sign up as of time recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like Jimothy, who donate a small amount of money each month to keep the show running, and we cannot thank him enough. So if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, we really would greatly appreciate it. So Jimothy, this episode on Suriname is thanks to you. As usual, here's our three book recommendations. The first is History of the Guyanas by Dave Robbins, for a look at the three nations of the Guyanan shell. The second is Forgotten Continent by Michael Reed for a look at the history of the region. And the third is Suriname in the long 20th century, domination, contestation, and globalization for a detailed look at Suriname itself. I want to thank this week's guests, Evan Ellis, Perry Grace, and Chris Sabatini. All of you were amazing to work with on this one, and we look forward to having you back on the show soon. I just want to thank my staff, Owen Swift, the producer, Perry Grace and Daniela Zavella, head research assistants and writers, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Ross Crabtree, our media specialist, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, Nick Much, our field correspondent, as well as Jonah Gunn and Robert Sutton, our new production assistants. I know I say it every episode, but I really am incredibly proud of this team. I'm looking forward to seeing what we can do this year. The Red Lion will be back in a fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money, and not just your own. Stay on top of the latest financial and market news with Yahoo Finance, a podcast that releases new episodes almost every day. You'll hear a brief overview of the biggest news in the financial world, all in three minutes or less, right after markets close. Check out Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.